Hello, everyone. Welcome to another edition of Odyssey House Journals. I'm Randall Carlisle. I have a special guest today, Marty Blaustein. Uh, and we are looking back to, we are celebrating this year Odyssey's 50th birthday, which we've been around a long time. So have you, Marty. I have, yeah. <laughs> uh, you were, uh, your first position at Odyssey House here was administrative director, right. which meant what? Um, it basically meant that I was going to train the local director and I was going to be resp- basically responsible for handling all the treatment affairs um, of all the residents that were part of the original core group, not no. part of the core group, and all the new people that would be coming in. What was it? Uh, I'm sure a lot of people have driven by our original house, which is on what? 68 s- South. S- I think it's 68 South. 6th East, East yeah. right? Uh, it's that two-story or three-story building that three has stories. blue and white, and it has a big Odyssey sign in front. Right. And that was the only place that Odyssey had back then. That's right. Now we've got like 26 locations or something. <laughs> wow. yeah. uh, when you first came there and we first opened our doors, what was the program like? I mean, you know, what, what were daily activities like in the house? Well, the daily activities were basically to survive. Um, we didn't have a lot of money. I mean, they didn't pay me to drive to, to, to move here. They paid my expenses, but that's basically it. We didn't have a lot of money. So there was a tight budget. So eating, uh, people had to contact local community people, had to contact local bakeries. The kind of same kind of stuff we did in New York, getting donations to survive. At the same time, people that were there uh, had had to develop certain skills. They had to have people in the kitchen. They had to have people who were doing interior maintenance. Uh, in other words, the building was uh, structurally sound, but needed a lot of rehabilitation. So a lot of the work activities of the residents as part of their treatment program, part of the treatment program, was that they were going to uh, rehab the building. They were going to fix it up. They had to go out and get materials. We didn't have the money to get materials, so they had to go you know, get donations from people, make phone calls, get donations from uh, uh, from supply houses, uh, retailers. Do you have any extra paint that you don't need? That kind of stuff. Rugs. We used to get pieces of rugs and, and put them on the ground. We'd get the squares, and they'd have to sew them together and then maybe glue them down to the, uh, to the, to the, to the floor surface and then fix the ceiling. I remember people in the very front, they had the ceiling was loose, the interior of the ceiling was loose, and they had to fix fix that up. So there was a lot of work for the residents to do, and the structure of Odyssey House, one, two, three, four levels, um, uh, the level fours, of course, were uh, the people that supervised the level threes, right. and the level threes would do the number twos. And then, of course, we would contact, we would contact the police departments. We would contact mental health people, let them know we're in town. So there was a lot of work to, that, to get people to know what Odyssey House was, was essentially about. It was a drug-free community. We were doing urine tests. Uh, we, I guess probably the pioneers with respect to urine tests because right. you know, you, you know, the only, only thing we could do to, to establish credibility is to tell people in the community that our people are straight. Um, you know, they, they're, they're giving up urine and we're monitoring them. In fact, we had, um, uh, I used to supervise people urinating into in cups. That must have been fun. Eyeball, eyeball <laughs> to eyeball. We didn't, tru- we didn't trust uh, addicts to give urine because we learned from experience that people would put urine in a 
in a in a balloon and have the balloon under their arm and then run the tube down to their hands and then you and and it was warm you know <laughs> the urine was warm and it would come out and you wouldn't know it unless you're looking for it right that's how some of the slick uh, slick new york uh, people how used to get away with uh, getting 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 good urine putting it to, so that's how that's how that uh, that's how that basically functioned. What was it like uh, dealing? I, I should say, uh, Marty's, uh, you're a, a, a prominent lawyer in town now, uh, but you weren't back then, no. right? What What was it like going out in the Salt Lake community in 1971, saying, "Hey, we're Odyssey House," talking about the program, and also like asking people for donations and stuff? What What kind of response did you initially get from? conservative Utahns. Well, you know, the, the fact that we were all from New York already put a big red red flag up. Um, people were really... A bunch of drug addicts from New York coming yeah, in. Coming, coming, into this na- coming into this nice, quiet neighborhood. And there was nothing... The community itself was fairly welcoming. I mean, the, uh, uh, the, the property on 68 South, um, a group of New Yorkers coming in, drug addicts coming in, ex-drug addicts coming in, uh, the community was relatively welcoming. They, we didn't have any picket signs saying you you don't belong in this neighborhood. Uh, so the community, I felt, was was always kind of welcoming. I think where we had most of the heat, the local community wasn't, most of the heat we got was from the professional communities who was just trying to find out what Odyssey House was about, a psychiatric drug abuse program, therape- therapeutic community. Um, I, I, didn't, I didn't see any resist community resistance the resistance was just trying to get stuff so that we could survive and that's where the resistance was we had to pull people's arms hey you gotta we're gonna go make you 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 uh, you throw away a lot of food um every day we're gonna come get it that's okay and make arrangements that way and we had people who were able to sell themselves on the phone to go pick this stuff up uh i don't remember if we had a van i don't remember if we had vehicles uh, I just don't remember how we get stuff, but we had, we were pretty resourceful. We had to we had to survive. And that meant, that's what made the core group um, the core group was was pretty tight in the sense that the people were had to depend on each other in order in order basically to survive in the community. But the, I thought the community was pretty was really super receptive um, to us. Uh, the professional community didn't know what to, didn't know what to think. We'd go to the university, we'd go to classes, social work classes, uh, psychiatric classes. Uh, Judy would come to town, and she would go to the medical school. She would go to the law school, and basically drum up just drum up a lot of press. I don't know if you saw there was a an article that was di- that was done. I think by the Salt Lake Tribune. Uh, Bob Ensworth was the director. He was the second director, but he actually lived in the house with eight kids. He had eight young kids, five of which I think were all adopted. Uh, he lived on the top floor. Him and his wife, um, basically, they, he was the director. Uh, he was the second director, but he was probably the director for five, six, five or six years here. In but there was a great article, uh, family photograph of him with all the kids in the front of, right in front of the building. So I imagine you we can probably get a copy of probably get a copy. Boy, of those were different days. If you think about it, you've been, you're obviously keenly aware of what, what's gone on in Salt Lake for, for years. And we've grown into, like, we treat almost 10,000 clients a year. 
have close to a, a $30 million budget wow. now, wow. I, uh, 26 locations, 23 different programs. I, I mean, I didn't know. Did, I think didn't know. Back, back in 1971, did you guys have any idea that it would grow like that? No, I, I think, you know, at, at that time, um, Odyssey House was, was essentially corporate. It was kind of a, developing a corporate model where uh, Odyssey House was in Michigan, New Hampshire. Utah was the furthest west, and, it was, and possibly a program. Actually, there was a program in Flint, Michigan, because I, I went to that Michigan program. I don't know, I did some kind of consulting. Not consulting, but they had some problems there with staff, so they asked me to come in and, and kind of calm things down. So, uh, <laughs> so I went to, went to Michigan. And then um, the controversy about the corporate status hit, and then they broke the corporation. I think had to break up, and they broke. The, it was no longer a corporation run by one person. Uh, it became basically individual corporations in local and basically local communities without the supervision from 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 New York or from Judy Ann and her staff. We sh- we keep talking about Judy Ann, and for people who are watching. Uh, it's, it's Judy Ann Denson Gerber, and she began in New York, uh, and she was both a lawyer and a doctor, and, and the program expanded, as you said, corporately, and then everybody split off, and so that we're Odyssey House of Utah, and we're just uh, unique unto ourselves. Right, right, right. Uh, and so, um, it, it, and, and Judy Ann, uh, she wrote this book, We Mainline Dreams, uh, and you knew Judy Ann. She was a she was a maverick at the time uh, because she she basically invented the concept of the therapeutic community. Which can, can you describe the therapeutic community? Um, it's a, essentially, how would you describe it? It, it, you, it's it's hard to describe, but it's it's a therapeutic basi- community. Basically, is uh, it's a community of community of caring, a group of people that get together, um, and they all know everything about each other. Um, if there's a problem one person has with another person, there's what they call confrontations. They work, they go to group together, they work together, they basically wind up sleeping together, separate rooms, separate dormitories. But the therapeutic community means that um, everybody is aware of um, a person's strengths, strengths and a person's weaknesses. And, and, and peer support is so important uh, in our program, and that's basically that's a right. therapeutic community. So you achieve different levels uh, within the program, and the higher you go, the more responsibility you have in taking care of the right. lower levels, right. while at the same time having professional people at the top. Right, right. And I think part of the therapeutic, uh, the therapeutic approach was is that um, – the group itself that you were a part of um, went with you through your your life activities. For example, um, if you had a wedding to go to, if you're going through a divorce, the people in your group pretty much knew what you were going through and were there basically to support you. Because one of the bedrocks of, of coming clean and making it through a treatment program like this is total honesty, right? Well, honesty was, you know... Uh, uh, was a key to any kind of therapy in any almost any kind of therapeutic setting that you couldn't um, the key was being honest and a lot of the, the clients that we had 
you know, they were on the street, and a lot of them weren't you weren't actually used to telling the truth. So they had <laughs> people think? that knew them really well. They knew when they were lying. They knew when they were upset, and that was part of how you were getting support um, through the program. Because getting through the program wasn't wasn't easy. Uh, getting through the program was hard, and the program would last. 18, you know, they would tell people 18 months to two years. Uh, people never saw themselves starting on day one going through a, going through a two-year two, two, two program. Um, so the therapeutic, therapeutic community, the therapy, therapy was, was, came about through interaction with your essentially with your peer group. And we, uh, last week, we interviewed one of the first clients who came out with the New York group, right. uh, Gary Gingold. Mm -hmm. uh, and he talked about uh, Judy Ann Denson-Gerber uh, and his impressions of her. What did you think of her? How would you describe her? Um, uh, she's legendary in Odyssey circles. Right. Judy was probably ahead of her time um, in terms of being a leader, in terms of... Um, a being a doctor, she I think she went to, she went to law school first, and then from law school she went to medical school. I think she was in uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg's law school class. No kidding. Yeah, and I think when um, I saw an interview when Ruth Bader Ginsburg was selected to the Supreme Court, I think she Judy Ann and about four or five other women from. Columbia Law School, I think, were part of that, were essentially part of that interview. That's why I know that she was, she went to school with Ruth Bader Ginsburg. What was she like personally? Um, Forceful? Uh, arrogant? Uh, how would you describe her? She was pretty dominant, I would describe. Dominant in the sense that she gets, what she, what she wants, she's going to get. Um, and she did. And she did. Uh, <laughs> she was pretty dominant. She had a, a lot of people worshipped her. I mean, you talk about loyalty, worship is not loyalty. It's more like worship, worshiping. Um, people believed in everything that she'd said. She wouldn't lie to you. She would tell you the truth. Uh, she was really super, you know, she was always very, she was always, she came across being very bright, uh, articulate, but she was kind of a unique in the sense that um, she was a woman in the 70s when women, um, didn't come out uh, or weren't supposed to come out or be as aggressive as, uh, as she was. We went to, had a meeting with some LDS church officials after we first came to Salt Lake City. And um, we met with some officials who I thought were really, really super sharp. And Judy, of course, was in the meeting, ran the meeting, and and I don't know, I don't re recall their impression, but must have been okay because uh, we got a lot of support from, you know, from the LDS Church. We, uh, <clears throat> we didn't get into your background, but you, uh, you, you were part, uh, part of a group called the core group that came out from, uh, the, what do you call it, the Mother House the in, part of the in, mother in house, New York. Right. We, we came, basically, we came out of, uh, uh, we started a core group that was in Manhattan, there were people that were part of that core group that were made up of people from basically all over the United States. They had some people from Utah, from New Hampshire, from Michigan, New York, that made up the core, uh, make up the core uh, group that was going to ultimately come out to Salt Lake City. So um, I was, in effect, chosen 
because of my desire to go west. <laughs> and so when they were looking for someone to, to hire to go west, I says, well, Marty, you, you wanted to come when you first started working here. It would be a perfect transition for you. So it's a couple of states away. That's a couple of states away. So I decided I would go. That's when the, the core group, they had their first staff person that uh, they trained locally who could take the, the, the Odyssey House model and, and kind of take it to and take it out west into Salt Lake City. You were telling me before we started the podcast about your your interview to get the job initially with Odyssey right, right. and how long it lasted. Can you, you yeah, share that? Uh, the interview was uh, uh, lasted. The, I was supposed to be there at 4 o'clock in the afternoon. I get there at 4 o'clock in the afternoon. Interview didn't end until almost midnight. And part of the interview was Staff people, all the Odyssey House staff people were one side of the room. Um, people that were interviewing for the job positions were on the other side of the room. And that we'd go around the room. They'd ask questions of the people on one side of the room, would ask questions of the people who were being interviewed, interviewees. And um, I stayed there not because I, because they asked me, why do you want to work here? The job interview. Why do you want this job? <laughs> and so my first response was, and I can remember it pretty distinctly, is, well, I don't really want to work here. <laughs> I'm on my way to Cal. I'm on my way to California. I just got out of the military, and you know I don't really want to work. So of course they jumped to the next person, uh, um, and then they keep coming back to me. It's you know I'm here two hours now. I'm here three hours. Uh, why are you still here? Uh, actually, the real reason I was still there is because there was a young woman in, that uh, that was part of the interview process. That uh, that maybe we'd go out to, after this thing was over. We'd have something. We'd go out and get some breakfast. Or something. Potential girlfriend. Potential girlfriend, right. <laughs> okay. And so after the interview was over at midnight, close to midnight, um, we're all leaving, and then they come out to get me and say, we want to see you right away. So I, I, so I stopped. I went into this large room, another large room, in which all the staff was there, and they were asking me about uh, if I really – if I really wanted to leave, if I really didn't want to work here, then I would have left a long time ago. I wouldn't sat through the whole thing. Of course, they didn't say in that interview that the reason I was here is because of this young lady that was, <laughs> I had eyes on. I didn't say anything like, I didn't say anything like that. Um, and so they offered me a job. Uh, I was the first person that they called. I think they might have hired seven or eight people. They offered me a job at that point in time, and Judy's, Judy's response to me was, if you don't like it, you quit. You leave. No harm, no foul. So I says, okay. So the next, so at, at midnight, twelve thirty, I decide, okay, I'll I'll start working. They want me to work next morning, uh, New Jersey house, uh, and so I accepted it, and it was probably a, one of the better decisions that I had made um, because I didn't go to California at least then, um, and uh, it was for per, on a personal level, it was it was a good transition from getting out of the military to work at Odyssey House. Most important question, did you ever go out on a date with the girl who was sitting never, next never to you? Never met her. I never, <laughs> after, I was the first one they called. Uh, uh, she didn't wait around. I was, mid, it was, you know, it was close to midnight. And so I never, I never, never even knew her name. So. Eight-hour job interview. Yeah. I've never heard right. of anything like that. You went on then, after you left Odyssey, you got your law degree, and you did what here in Utah? Well, I worked at, uh, uh, initially... Part of the story is after I graduated from law school, I was looking, you know, I was, I took the California bar exam and I'm kind of in Never Never Land. I took the California bar exam. I'm waiting for bar results. I'm planning on taking the Utah bar exam. In the meantime, um, I had to find some work. 
Um, I since I was a vet, I was a disabled vet, um, I got a job with the Disabled American Veterans. I worked there for about a year. Um, after I got my law license, um, the VA was, um, I was pretty unique at the time because there was, it was unheard of to have a Vietnam vet who had a law license. And I was the only grad in law school, I was the only Vietnam vet that was in my law school class. And so the VA hired me. Uh, hey, we want, you know, we want you to work for the VA. So I worked for the VA for about, I think it was almost uh, four and a half, about four and a half, about four and a half years. And um, I didn't like working for the VA. Uh, I did an interview, in fact, um, at the time I was working for the VA, I did a lot of pro bono work dealing with veterans' issues. Uh, even though I, the stuff I was doing at the VA was completely different than, than veterans' issues, really. But I represented about 18 people pro bono in the Agent Orange lawsuit, ah. which, resolved, which was resolved in 1984. At the time, it was the largest class action lawsuit settlement in history. It was a $180 million settlement. Um, I represented 18 vets pro bono. None of those people got any money out of that out of that settlement. I was interviewed on a in a national program on a national news because I was opposed to the settlement. Everybody would say hey, it was a great thing. I says it wasn't. I was a part of that class. It wasn't a great thing. The amount of money that they were giving the people was very minor, especially the size, basically because of the size of the class itself. Then um, how'd you get to Utah Legal Services? Utah Legal Services, as well as working for the VA, um, a job opened up. I saw in the newspaper, and uh, I said, "Well, this would be this would be a pretty good transition because I can still do VA stuff, outreach stuff, uh, and represent vets on veteran issues." And they were going to allow me to do that. Uh, at the time, I would, I was writing a column for a veterans, it was a national veterans newspaper dealing with veterans issues. It was like a, they write questions to me and I'd answer them in writing and it would go out, uh, it was called Bravo, the newspaper was called Bravo. Um, anyway, um, while I was doing that, a job opened up in legal services, I applied for it, I interviewed for it, and uh, they hired me for the job in, in uh, Ogden. And I stayed in Ogden for about five years. And during that period of time, I, was, I went to court a lot, developing a lot of legal skills, did a lot of writing, uh, basically put aside a lot of the veterans' issues that I was dealing with, still did some discharge review, discharge upgrades, um, and also did a lot of pro bono dealing with the, working with the, working with the VA, uh, VA-type VA claims. So I got to the transition from the VA to to uh, Utah Legal Services was pretty was a pretty good transition. And of course, I stayed there for about 30 years until I decided I was going to retire, which was a year, which was January, last January. What were clients like? I, I guess primarily heroin addicts uh, back in the beginning. What what would you say they were any different then than than say somebody dealing with a heroin abuse issue now? I can't. You know, I don't. Um, Back in back in the day, drug uh, 
drugs were, it was, a, it was like a societal. I mean, back in the 60s, back in the 70s, drugs were, heroin was, uh, heroin was really a super, super bad thing. I think it's gotten worse today in the sense that you're seeing a lot more, you're seeing a lot more meth, um, meth use, manufacturing meth. I think uh, now combination people today use heroin because it's too expensive to get to, to buy drugs over the counter, so they'll right. buy so buy heroin. Um, is there a difference? I don't know if I could answer that well, I, question. What, what, what were they like back then? I mean, were they? I mean, a lot of clients when they come into our program are are pretty resistant to change and to honesty and to and, and and living you know by a structure of, that hasn't changed. Um, I think today, you, today, drug. If you if you can't get drugs, you 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 steal to get the drugs. Usually, the pattern is you start stealing from family, you start stealing from friends, until they realize that this is a permanent thing. And then they then ultimately they show you the door, uh, and you have to you, you wind up uh, um, continuing to hustle on the street. So I think in that sense, things things really haven't changed. Uh, perhaps it would change if they legalized, if drugs became legalized and you wouldn't have to hustle for it. You wouldn't make it into a crime. Uh, to get, in order to get drugs, you wouldn't, it wouldn't be cr criminal. Uh, you'd be going to get your heroin. Maybe there's, a, maybe there's a, a pharmacy you'd go and you'd get a prescription, but it wouldn't cost you anything. Of course, you'd, have to, you'd be required to go into some kind of a treatment program. So I don't think it's, I think the perceptions... I don't think the perceptions have changed. I think you're a drug, you're greasy, you're coming off the street, you're living on the street, or you're at home, uh, and you're you're selling everything you own, and uh, until you until you wind up being kicked out onto the street. So. Did you did you see a lot of success back then with the program, or I mean, were there a lot of people dropping out, or? Well, I think the question was, you know, you have to define what success is. What completion, maybe. Completion of the program, in Odyssey House to go for the, you know. You probably saw five percent or less of the program population that graduated from Odyssey House after the two years, for example, or longer. Five percent from day one wind up wind up grad wind up graduating. Out of those people that graduated, they usually did they usually did fairly well. Uh, there was a lot of turnover early on. Um, what I mean by the turnover is that you start the program and you. You don't like it, you drop out, um, and it, you start the cycle of, of uh, using drugs, going to a treatment program, leaving the program, using drugs, and the cycle just begins and over and over again. Now the courts, even the courts now, uh, uh, they almost expect you uh, to, um, uh, to, they almost expect you to, uh, to fail and they'll give you chances to, to, to get, back, to, to get back, back into a treatment program. So I think going into getting, re, getting into rehabilitation uh, and being successful in rehabilitation is, I think, it's, you know, it's not just stopping drugs, it's the whole, it's the whole community concerning <coughs> the drugs right. itself. It's the community. I mean, you have friends that are connected with drugs. And so if you leave the program, you go back to your friends, and what are the friends doing? They're using drugs. You're going to get right back into it. You almost have to break. To be successful, you have to break with all your old habits, and, and um, that's, that's the part that I think is, is most difficult. So to make the break, that's why length of time is so, is so critical. You've got to 
completely break from your past. Those friends that are still using out there, you, if you go back to them, you're going to start using again. Because it's social, it's a, it's a, it's kind of a habit thing. You're gonna, you're gonna go back, you're gonna go back to it because that's what you know. We only have about a minute left. How would you assess the impact of your working, of your years working at Odyssey, uh, in terms of how it influenced the rest of your life? Uh, uh, a, I, um, hey, look, my history was, I was a pretty angry. Vietnam vet when I got out of Vietnam. Still am. Uh, um, I never used drugs. Um, Odyssey House, essentially, I was part, of, even though I was a staff person, I was really part of that core group. People got had my back. They were concerned about me. They were concerned about what I was doing, why I was alone, why I was a loner. Um, my anger um, was put, you know, some people used drugs when they were angry. Me, I took it I went academically, you know. <laughs> that's the direction that I went. A um, little more constructive. <laughs> yeah, more constructive. I didn't. I never used. I never even in the military. I didn't. I didn't use drugs. Hey, we, my outfit was uh, pretty much on the run. All not on the run, but we were always moving around. It was hard to get your hands on drugs. Um, but most of the guys in my outfit didn't. But Odyssey House changed uh, the community itself. Um, People had people had my. I was the same age as the residents. You know, we were in that same age, so we were all kind of growing up. We were all kind of growing up together, different experiences. Uh, I never had any therapy session, but I used to piggyback. You know, piggyback in the sense that uh, there were there were there were some vets that it, were in Odyssey House, and I would be part of that. I would be part of a group or or part of their groups, and we would talk about individual different experiences. So, so. Um, I don't know if I'm, I don't think things would have been the same had I not been a staff member or involved, not involved with Odyssey House. I met my wife through Odyssey House. I mean, she was with welfare and uh, worked with welfare, and um, we met at a with the we used to call it a concept group where we used to talk concepts, uh, life, and it was open to the general public, and so she was part of that group. Uh, how my life I think my life has changed because of the experiences that that I live with uh, and the people I know I'm still friends with Gary I'm still friends with Bernie it's not like uh, they're friends of mine I mean it's not like uh, I'm a staff person so I right. so I'm, I, I maintain a distance because I used to be a staff member here um, so anyway I think it, it made a ma major change in my life because I it just I forced me to grow up, deal with deal with the issues that I was dealing with. That you know, as a as a vet, as a person that um, uh, was just basically growing up through the seventy in the seventies. Well, thank you for sharing your thoughts with us today, Marty Blaustein is our has been our guest as we celebrate Odyssey's fiftieth anniversary, which you probably had no idea we were going to be celebrating. Well, I, that you I, would be doing a podcast. I knew that. I knew that. Uh, Gary mentioned before he went to New York that he was going to come. When he comes back, he's going to contact us. We knew it was the 50th anniversary. Yeah. I mean, November 1st is the 50th. And so uh, we knew that we were going to – Gary – and Gary's the one that was going to make the – was going to contact uh, 
uh, the Odyssey House people. And hey, are you guys doing anything? Because we were at the 25th anniversary. <coughs> right. And the 25th anniversary was at, I'm trying to think of where it was. I don't know, it was one of the one of the Odyssey House facilities. Bob Ensworth was was around then, but we knew that he was sick and and probably dying. Um, but we saw a lot of the people from the from the core group came out that was here that was still living in Salt Lake City uh, at the 25th anniversary. So we knew something was going to happen, <laughs> but we didn't know we didn't know how to how to approach it, how to right. um, you know how to get things going, yeah. but do something at 50 years, even with That's even with COVID 19 out there. That's why we haven't had a big celebration this year. So this is part of our celebration of the anniversary. Right, right. right. Well, it's something. Ha- you know, you need to do something. Fifty years is a long time ago. It really yeah, is. We're not going to see another fifty, but uh, this is Neither the one you, you got. Neither you nor I will. No, That's, I know. Right. That's right. Odyssey House may. But Maybe. Yeah. <laughs> but I didn't realize Odyssey House has gotten to be so big and has a yeah, yeah. thirty million dollar thirty million dollar budget. That's a thirty million dollar budget. That's 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 pro- big. Yeah, Thanks, that's Marty. A pretty program. Thank you for inviting me. Appreciate having you, and I love hearing these stories. Thank you for watching another edition of Odyssey House Journals.